Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined as always by Simon Elliott, head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Well, last week, Simon, we ended by talking about the impending cricket match in India, uh, where unfortunately the English uh, team got caught up by a very nasty wicket. I guess you might be able to say something similar has been going on in the markets this week. It's been a pretty, pretty tough patch on which to play. No, you're absolutely right. A tough week for England cricket fans and a tough week for investors in investment companies as well. So the investment company index will end the week down probably between about 4 and 5%. And that represents an underperformance for the wider UK marketplace. So we saw a sell-off in Friday. So the uh, FTSE All Share will probably end down about uh, 2% or so for the week. But uh, a pretty tough time. Uh, discounts have widened out uh, a bit, probably nearer to 3% from the starting point of 2% at the start of the week. But within that, obviously, some will have been derated uh, a lot more. But really, the story this week has been the rotation from uh, the very highly regarded, highly rated technology, growth, Chinese names, uh, and possibly into value. A lot of talk about the, the rise in the yield of long bonds. Uh, and uh, the return of inflation. That seems to have caught the market's attention. Yes, that's definitely been the story of the week, or the last couple of weeks, I should say. And uh, we had the Federal Reserve on uh, this week, uh, the Chairman Jay Powell coming out and saying that the, there'll be no change in the Federal Reserve's policy. They're going to keep policy as light as possible. And that was seen as a an attempt to uh, calm the jitters in the bond market. But if so, hasn't worked so far. As you say, we've seen some quite dramatic moves in uh, individual securities anyway, and indeed in some investment trusts, as you say. I mean, let's just mention a couple of them. Well, let's start with Scottish Mortgage, the biggest investment trust in the UK. And it's been, why, one hell of a roller coaster ride for them this year. It really has. And, and even just this week, to be honest. So this week, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust will end up uh, probably down about 16% or so. But if anything, it's been the intraday moves that have been even more dramatic. So uh, to look at Tuesday, for instance, at one stage, the share price was down 11% alone in in, uh, just the first four hours of trading. And that's relatively unusual for a a mainstream investment trust company to see that kind of derating. Invariably, the the pattern with Scottish Mortgage uh, Investment Trust, and this will be true for most global and, and technology funds where they have a large exposure to the U.S., is that a lot of the underlying holdings in their portfolios uh, were not really seen live pricing until the US market opens at 2.30 in the afternoon. So the fact that we saw such a massive derating in the morning trading session on the UK market was interesting. And funnily enough, on that example in Tuesday, that the price did rally quite sharply in the afternoon, although ended up down on the day. But yeah, a real roller coaster, as you say, for Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. It's certainly not alone. Uh, it, a number of its Bailey Gifford stablemates uh, are keeping it company, as are those uh, investment trusts exposed to uh, China and actually Japan as well. Japan's had a, a real rocky week. Yes, and that's of course interesting because only you know a couple of months ago we were talking about the fact that the Chinese investment trusts are all trading at massive premiums. There was a huge amount of buying. Well, I'm afraid that those people who perhaps didn't listen to the warnings that you're buying investment trusts when they're at those kind of significant ratings for an ordinary equity trust. You know, the whiplash can be very powerful. And I'm afraid that some of those who piled in at the end of last year are going to be feeling a little sorry for themselves. How much of that share price movement is due to a change in the discount, though, Simon? And how much due to the change in the reported NAVs? 
Yeah, so it varies is the answer. So with, with Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, it's still trading, I mean, depends exactly where it's ended up on, on Friday, but on a relatively small discount. And in fact, that's been the pattern. Um, but it's a very large liquid uh, investment trust you, you, and it has a record of trading around uh, NAV or if not on a small premium now for a number of years. Clearly, the smaller, less liquid names that have been hit, you would expect them to see to be more derated. Uh, and you know, you mentioned China. If we take China as a case in point, if you look at the names there, there's still some quite big premium ratings. So uh, the Bailey Gifford China Growth Trust that will still be on a, at a bit of a premium, uh, where the rest are trading around NAV. So um, there is some derating. There is actually often quite a bit of a time lag as well. Sometimes you see it takes uh, a few days for. Uh, the share price to kind of catch up with any of the movements. But in this particular instance, um, there seems to be some not insignificant retail selling of some of those very strongly uh, performing names, particularly the ones that did well last year. So it does look as if some of the retail investors are taking fright a little bit. Yes. And of course, this is one of the fascinating things about the way that markets behave. You know, as we said a few weeks ago, people were happy to buy some of these things at a premium. Uh, and then when it goes to a discount, when you think by definition it must be more attractive than it was when it was at a premium, people don't actually buy at that point because they're now spooked by the fact that its uh, share price has moved so much. So it's a kind of interesting illustration of the kind of psychological pressures that people feel under. They like to buy things when they're at a premium, or even if they shouldn't. And when they do go to a discount, when you think they'd be snapping it up because that's what they want to own, they're not there either. So quite an interesting lesson that, I think. Of course, we don't know where this is all going to end. It's quite a, a common characteristic of the markets that uh, we see these sharp moves and that is invariably accompanied by a whole series of prophets of doom who are expecting them to be extrapolated into the future. And quite often that has turned out not to be the case in the last few years. But of course, one day it will turn out to be the moment when we hit the peak of the market. So have you got any kind of thoughts here from the kind of clients you've been speaking to this week, Simon, about what uh, the mood is? Obviously, a lot of people are watching each other's tails here. That's the nature of the investment game in the professional world. Are they getting infected by this kind of uh, sort of gloom about bond deals and inflation? Yeah, I mean, short-term volatility is just, a, as, you, as you correctly observe, it's a function of the marketplace. You know, we do see this periodically. Um, most investors are long-term in nature, and, and they'll kind of look through this and look for the long-term trends. Interesting, I have had a few discussions with people about inflation. Are we genuinely expecting to see inflation come back? And there are some strong voices uh, who, who suggest that we could go into an inflationary environment and that would have repercussions for some of the wider market trends. And I think that's what people are looking for. The, the market volatility is one thing, but it's the kind of long-term direction. Does this represent a turning point? And clearly, we won't know that for some time. Indeed. So one needs to keep a calm head in these interesting weeks. Let's start off then with some news about uh, corporate activity. I think we've got the result of the uh, recent announcement by BlackRock Frontiers Investment Trust, BRFI. They've been having a tender offer. And what's been the outcome, Simon? That's right. So I think we've talked about this one in weeks gone by. But basically, there's a facility with this investment trust that every five years, they allow their shareholders um, a full exit, effectively a tender offer of up to 100%. The last time this was offered, it was very undersubscribed. In fact, I think the, the, the few shares that were tendered were placed out. In this particular instance, fifty a short 52 million shares, which was equivalent to about 22% of the shares in issue, were tendered. And uh, arguably, that probably reflects that it's been a slightly more 
a difficult time for investors in frontier markets over more recent years. So that equates to about £63 million. And the way that this is going to work, a tender pool will be created and holdings equivalent to that amount, £63 million, will be placed into that tender pool and liquidated over a period of time with proceeds returned to shareholders. Okay, so another item of news this week. This is concerning Troy Income and Growth, uh, where there's some news about the manager. That's right. Yep, this week we found out that Francis Brook, who had been the co-manager or the lead manager, actually, from 2009, uh, when Troy Asset Management were appointed the investment manager to this one, He's actually uh, stepping back from investment management at the end of this year. Uh, He's uh, still involved with Troy, though. He's going to take on the role as uh, vice chairman of Troy Asset Management. But in terms of Troy income and growth, uh, this will be managed by Hugo Ewell and Blake Hutchins. And they already are the co-managers of this investment trust. Hugo has been involved since uh, 2015 while uh, Blake, slightly more recent employment, back October last year. In fact, he joined Troy uh, in 2019 from Investec Asset Management. And, and clearly there has been a degree of succession planning here. This looks um, quite well signposted and one wouldn't expect any uh, change to the investment approach as a result. Yes, it might be worth um, reminding listeners who don't know the history of Troy that originally it sort of spun out of the, uh, if you like, the family office of Arnold Weinstock, the uh, the distinguished industrialist of who died uh, some 20 years ago, or maybe even more. I don't have the exact date to hand. Uh, and Troy has then sort of developed from that, as with, with that as the kind of kernel of its uh, assets under management, has grown into an independent fund boutique, been very successful, as we know, over the past 20 years. And Francis Brook is one of the effectively uh, the co-founders with uh, Sebastian Lyon, the CEO. So uh, I think he's probably earned his uh, time stepping back to become vice chairman, uh, supervising the future development of this particular uh, asset management company. Uh, I mean, Tigit is an interesting uh, investment trust in itself. How has it been trading recently? It obviously has a much, it's in the equity income sector, but it has a much lower yield than many of its competitors and uh, has been warning about um, some issues around dividends for a while, has it not? Yes, that's right. I mean, it trades around NAV. It's, it ha- it's pursued a zero discount policy for a number of years now in line with its stablemate personal assets trust. Uh, so uh, it, obviously you don't have discount volatility with this one. But you're, you're right about the point on the yield. So it is one of the, the lower yielding ones. Uh, and this, to, to be clear, this is not just because of what's happened last year with the impact from the coronavirus. I think they were always minded to adopt a, a lower running yield because that's where the portfolio has taken them. So there is a real emphasis on quality companies. They, they made it quite clear they don't want to chase uh, yield. They didn't want to kind of sacrifice quality for higher dividend payments. Uh, and frankly, that's probably not been too bad a strategy given what happened last year. But in terms of performance, um, it's fair to say that there are more spectacular performers uh, within that UK equity income peer group. Um, so over the last five years, Troy Income and Growth has delivered a 19% NAV total return, and that compares with 38% for the FTSE All Share. Although they're, they're very clear that there is a, a, an emphasis on companies, um, as I say, high quality companies uh, with recurring uh, revenue and predictable growth. And so they would never uh, expect to necessarily perform with the market, particularly at a period when it was uh, rising quickly because of that quality bias. Indeed. And that's the, that is the general philosophy of the whole Troy venture. I just checked my facts and uh, Troy Asset Manager set up in 2000 by, by Sebastian Lyon and uh, Lord Weinstock, as he, Arnold Weinstock, became. And uh, Francis Brook joined in 2004, actually, to launch the uh, Trojan Income Fund. Uh, 
Let's move on and talk about fundraising. Well, we're wanting to see if this market uh, jitters has an impact on fundraising. We, it's obviously easier to raise money in a bull market, but uh, let's have some news here. Let's kick off with the Sequoia Economic Infrastructure Income Trust. Which is a, a bit of a mouthful, but uh, suffice to say, they're looking to raise up to about £173 million for replacing at 105.25p, and that represents a 4% premium to their NAV at the end of January and about a 3% discount to the closing share price just before the announcement that they were looking to raise this capital. The placing closes on the 2nd of March, so the early part of next week. Uh, and the idea, as we've come to expect with these infrastructure plays, uh, they're going to look to reduce their debt levels down. And that will also enable investment into a near-term pipeline, which has been valued in excess of £230 million. And that includes data centres, electricity generation and supply and renewable energy. So we've seen a lot of fundraising in the infrastructure sector. We've talked about that an awful lot in the last few weeks. Um, how have the infrastructure trusts reacted to the change in bond yields this week? I mean, you'd imagine that they'd be fairly immune to that kind of thing in the short term, but uh, they are seen as defensive investments. So how have they been trading and what do you think the prospects for this uh, placing are? Will it be affected by the interest rate movements we've seen this week? But if you look at the premiums on the infrastructure funds, both the kind of more general uh, social infrastructure plays and also the renewable energy infrastructure plays, then the, the ratings are very strong. So it's very difficult, if not, frankly, impossible to find uh, any of these investment companies trading on a discount. The average premium uh, is certainly double digits for both those subsectors. So 13% for the more generalist infrastructure plays. Uh, probably about 11% uh, or so for the renewable energy. So, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens next week for Sequoia. But I think infrastructure is an asset class that remains in demand. I think not least as a, a part of the yield, the yield that it can offer. So if you look at uh, the generalist infrastructure funds, the average yield is about 5%, probably not dissimilar on the renewable energy side. And clearly that kind of level of yield, even in uh, even long dated bonds uh, are rising, that's still uh, a very attractive yield, I think, in most people's minds. And I think that underpins this particular sector. OK, so let's move on and talk about the Ski Hallian Fund. I'm still not quite sure that I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, I do know that this is a, a Bailey Gifford Fund, which is uh, named after a mountain in Perth and Kinross in Scotland, uh, a good Scottish name. Uh, and the ticker is MNTN, abbreviation of mountain, I imagine. Good one to have. What are they proposing to do? And uh, what do you think the prospects of this one are as well? Uh, well, I'm going to go for the pronunciation of Shihalian, but I, I, stand, right. I stand to be corrected. Uh, an easy one to get wrong, I suspect. But yeah, they, they published a circular uh, this week. They'd already told the market that they were looking to get shareholder permission to issue a, a C-share. Uh, and now we've got some more details on this. The actual um, general meeting will be on the 18th of March. Uh, and they've said that the, the C-share raise uh, is targeted to be in excess of $500 million. Uh, and that's a slight change from what they said previously. I think initially they said the C-share was not expected to be in excess of $500 million. And now it's actually they're targeting something a bit more than that. So it'll be very interesting to see how this one gets on. I mean, uh, it's a Bailey Gifford Fund, as you mentioned. Uh, Peter Singlehurst is responsible for it. He's the lead manager and he's also head of private companies uh, at Bailey Gifford. This IPO'd back in March 2019 when it raised about 480 odd million. 
dollars, uh, and it was really targeted to institutional investors. It wasn't marketed to UK intermediaries or the UK retail market. So this is the the, the first time really where it's trying to uh, raise its profile. I think it would be fair to say. For the purposes of full disclosure, uh, my, my colleagues at Winterflood are involved in this one. But I think looking at growth capital in, in general, and uh, you look at uh, how Chrysalis Investments has performed and how it's rated and how it's been uh, able to raise additional capital since its launch, I think it would be fair to say that, that there is a demand uh, for private companies through the form of a listed investment company. Clearly, private companies by definition are illiquid. And uh, I think many people would accept the point that it makes sense to uh, access them through a listed close-ended fund. It's a structure that, that seems well suited to it. Indeed, it does. Well, I'm going to take that now as official. That's how I'm going to pronounce it in future. Thank you for that, Simon. Uh, of course, I should have known that. I should have found out myself. But um, I apologise to anybody who listening who is offended by my inability to call a Scottish mountain correctly. Well, that, as you say, it will be interesting to see. Scaling up and then uh, you'll be disappointing then to have to Climb down a bit, so well, let's hope they don't get embarrassed there. Let's move on to uh, Target Healthcare REIT, another one in a, in a very fashionable sector. What's the news there? Yeah, so this is a, a, an interesting story. So again, the board had announced they were looking to raise uh, up to £50 million. And then this week, they came out and said they'd actually increased that target size to £60 million. And lo and behold, uh, they announced that that is indeed what they'd managed to, to raise and in fact, that was uh, oversubscribed. So they had to scale back investors. So a good result for them. Um, this was through uh, a placing and uh, the new shares begin to trade on the 3rd of March. And it also seemed to be well received by retail investors as well. The offer for subscription saw uh, about 5 million, just short of 5 million shares as well. So um, they will, I suspect, be quite pleased with that as a result. And how are the shares performing? I mean, what's the what's the rating on that one at the moment? And uh, has it come in at all since this uh, fundraising, or is it going to roughly where it was before? Yeah. So the the share price will have closed just short of one hundred and twelve p on the week, uh, and the placing was done at about one hundred eleven p. So a little bit ahead of the the placing. Um, and actually, funnily enough, it, before the placing was announced, it was trading uh, a little bit higher than that. So, and that's invariably what you'd expect with a placing, you, you, a little bit of discount to the receding share price. Obviously, still early days. And as I mentioned, those new shares don't start trading to next week. So it'll be interesting to see if the, the share price pushes on a little bit from there. But yeah, as I said, just about a penny higher uh, than the placing price. So let's move on and talk about some results. We've got quite a few results to get through, some quite well-known Trust. Let's kick off in the UK with Law to Venture. I guess that's the place to start. Quite a large trust, interesting trust. What have they had to say this week, Simon? So Law to Venture came out and announced its annual results for the year to the end of December uh, last year, obviously. NEV total return of about 2% in that year, and that compared with a decline for the FTSE All share of 10%. In share price terms, uh, it was even stronger up 13% on a total return basis, so a decent set of results. The dividend's a key part of this story. It's in the UK Equity Income Peer Group, uh, and the total dividend was actually up about 6%, just short of 6% year-on-year to 27.5p. Now, that was uncovered. The revenue per share was equivalent to about 21.5p, just over, and that was down 30% year-on-year. So uh, revenue reserves were uh, used to boost that dividend. But it's fair to say, if people weren't already aware, that this is a slightly unusual investment trust in as much as there is an investment portfolio. 
and that's run by James Henderson and Laura Fall of Janice Henderson. But there's also uh, an independent professional services business, uh, and Dennis Jackson uh, has been in charge of that now for a few years, and that seems to be performing very well. And that business provides about a third of the revenue for the dividend for this particular investment trust. And actually, the earnings from that business, the independent professional services business, were actually up about 9.5% uh, on the year. And I think that was their third consecutive year of, of pushing that business forward. Um, and that's reflected in the value of the business. That was increased 18% uh, to about $136 million, And that represents 17% of the NAV. So a pretty decent set of results for Law Dementia. Yes, and uh, I think the, as a result of that, they are rewarded with uh, one of the tightest ratings in the whole equity income sector, which is partly reflects, as I say, this uh, dual stream of income. But uh, if that's such a good idea, why aren't more people doing something like this in the in the investment trust sector? I mean, what are the origins of this one, and why is it, uh, it such an anomaly, if you like, in the world of investment trusts? Gosh, well, it has got a very long uh, history. Maybe it's a, a subject for a specialist podcast at some stage. I mean, it dates back to 1889. I mean, there's kind of three elements to their subsidiary business. They're involved in pensions, in corporate trusts, in corporate services. And the investment portfolio it kind of sprang out of uh, the requirement to kind of manage the balance sheet. It needed a balance sheet in order to be a trustee for these various services that it provided. It is an interesting story. It is a little bit different. And probably it's fair to say a few years ago, it had kind of been overlooked by the marketplace. Um, that's changed. It has been re-rated. And that's one of the reasons why its share price was so strong last year. And I think people have picked up on the fact that in terms of the dividend that it can offer its shareholders, it's not just reliant on its investment portfolio. It's the kind of there is, a, if not the heavy lifting, there is a substantial element that comes from the underlying business. But uh, when you talk to someone like James Henderson, Laura Fall, as I said, responsible for the investment portfolio, they, they'll tell you that actually this provides them with quite a degree of freedom to go out and invest in ideas that they're quite attracted to. Uh, but because the yield requirement is less from, from them, it gives them more flexibility. Uh, and certainly James and, and Laura seem, seem to benefit from that in terms of the performance of the investment portfolio. Yes, I think mean, as we heard last week, they also responsible for Henderson Opportunities Trust, and that's uh, a more pure play, if you like, on uh, on equities. So it is an interesting business. Uh, let's move on and talk about a gentleman who, as it happens, appeared in this year's Investment Trust Handbook. I'm talking about Harry Nimmo, the manager of the Standard Life UK Smaller Companies Trust, uh, a very interesting guy based in uh, Edinburgh, part of the Aberdeen Standard Combine now. Tell us what their results uh, have been like this week. That's right. So Standard Life UK Smaller Companies uh, released its interim results for the six months to the end of December. Interesting set of results. So the NAV total return was up 22% in that six-month period, which sounds very impressive. But to put it into perspective, its uh, benchmark index was actually up 31%. Uh, in share price terms, it, has, it actually beat the index. It was up 32%. But there was quite uh, good commentary around the results, making the point that uh, Harry Nimmo and actually Abby Glenny uh, is also responsible for this one as well now. Uh, the two of them manage this together. But the long-term performance track record, not just with this fund, but with um, Harry's other open-ended fund, is very, very strong. But there are always moments when we see a rotation in, in the marketplace, particularly when uh, we see recovery phases, when the strategy lags a little bit. And uh, he makes the argument that this is exactly what's happened in the, in the period covered by these results, particularly around November, December. So the names that performed uh, well for him, things like Jet2, Games Workshop and Gear for Music, whereas things like Hilton Food Group, RWS and Boohoo, which he actually sold, 
Cranswick and James Fisher were, were less effective. But it, it's very much a tried and tested investment approach, the emphasis on quality growth and momentum companies. And as I said, the long-term track record is strong. Yes, indeed. And uh, when I interviewed Harry for the, uh, the handbook uh, a few months ago, he actually made this point. He actually expected the recovery from the pandemic to lead to a period of underperformance by his drugs. But the key point being, he's not going to change his method. It's very much quantitative based in the first instance. He's going to stick to his method through thick and thin. And I think that's what uh, his investors would expect. So uh, he's not one of these managers who are trying to you know, trim and cut and trim according to the state of the markets or indeed the what's happening to bond prices. And I noticed that they say increase the gearing a little bit. So he's feeling quite positive about the future. You know, that's obviously at a time when the markets have, uh, have having a little bit of a nervous uh, panic. But he is a UK fund manager. And I think he's quite positive about uh, the outlook for the UK, which, as many have observed, looks very cheap compared to a number of other markets. It may be, of course, that the other markets become uh, cheaper as well, rather than the uh, UK catching up. We'll have to wait and see about that. Um, let's talk about another UK manager who may have some also some insights into that. A uh, slightly different part of the market uh, that the fund manager here operates in. This is JP Morgan Midcap Investment Trust. And what's the story here, Simon? That's right. So JP Morgan Midcap re- uh, reported its interim results also to the end of December. NAV total return up about 26% in that time. Uh, and that compared with about 22% rise for the FTSE 250. So um, a decent period. Um, it's very much about uh, the stock selection. Georgina Britton and Katen Patel have uh, enjoyed a good run uh, during those six months, certainly. Uh, and stocks such as Pets at Home, JD Sports, Jet2, Games Workshop again, uh, performing well for it. It's interesting, although it's not really a, or certainly the key reason for buying this one would not be particularly the dividend, they did provide some commentary around that and just made it clear that actually earnings per share had fallen from about 15p to uh, nearer to 8p, although the interim dividend had been maintained. Uh, and there was some discussion in the chairman's statement uh, around that but uh, a strong period for J.P. Morgan Midcap. Well, those uh, results, obviously, uh, one point to make, I guess, is that these are six-month figures, and uh, they obviously are all going to look quite good because that's the period of the recovery and the vaccine news. They're going to look very good, those numbers, in, in absolute terms. But, of course, you have to look at the whole year. And as we saw with Lord Adventure, the, the all-share index was down nearly 10% over the year. But uh, small-cap and mid-cap did better in the second half of the year during the recovery. And I guess that's one point I just should also emphasize, or perhaps you could uh, reinforce for me, Simon, which is obviously this this time last year, we were just beginning the market sell-off, which saw the market fall 30% in 30 days or so. So what impact is that going to have on the performance numbers? If you look at the share price performance over short periods of time over a year, quite soon they're going to suddenly look quite good, aren't they? Because they'll be comparing it to the bottom of the sell-off last March. Is that a fair point to make or something that people should look out for? Don't be fooled by a sudden appearance of very strong one-year results. No, you make a very good point. And actually, this week, we caught up with the uh, the investment manager at uh, uh, Majedi, who's responsible for Edinburgh Investment Trust, and um, who's done a good job uh, since they took that man- mandate on in March last year. But uh, there's always a question with an investment manager, exactly when the clock starts. Uh, when is your starting point? Uh, and in the case of Edinburgh Investment Trust, the, the waters are muddied a little bit. So I think it's off the top of my head. It's about the, the 4th of March that the uh, portfolio moved across, but it was in the hands of BlackRock, who were uh, responsible for the transition. So the investment manager only got his hands on it towards the end of March. And in that difference of three weeks, 
is a considerable considerable difference uh, in terms of the performance outperformed on both counts, uh, but a very material level of performance difference in just that three-week period. I mean, if you look at the FTSE All Share now from from today, looking back twelve months, it's absolutely flat. I mean, if you'd uh, you know flown off to, or popped off to Mars or somewhere twelve months ago and come back, you'd have thought that you really hadn't missed much. Uh, but as you said, it was uh, an incredible period. And the starting point is absolutely crucial when you come to measure the performance. Yes, I guess that the uh, the guys at Majority are pretty happy that they didn't have it for those two weeks. Exactly. It would be very good for their for their future marketing. And I have to say something very similar happened with uh, the Investment Trust, which I'm on the board, which is the uh, Jupiter UK Growth Trust. Exactly the same thing happened. Uh, the transition period was right in the middle of the, uh, of the market sell-off. So um, interesting impact on statistics as we all know about statistics. Uh, let's move on and talk about overseas. Can we talk about CC Japan income and growth? We were talking about them not so long ago because they were issuing some subscription shares. Uh, they've now got some results, so with which, if you like to bolster that, what are they? how were their results last year? So they announced their annual results for the 12 months to the end of October. And it, it, was, a, it was a bit of a tough period, to be honest. The NAV total return was down about 11%. And that compared with their benchmark index, the, the topics, uh, which was just slightly in positive territory. In share price terms, they struggled even more. So the share price total return was actually down about 17% as their discount widened from about 6% out to 13%. Now, this underperformance was attributed to the value and yield bias, which this portfolio, this investment trust undoubtedly has. And obviously, uh, the structural gearing was a negative, particularly as the aforementioned sell-off in February, March last year. And in fact, net gearing at the year-end uh, stood at 21%. As the name would suggest, uh, this investment trust is invested in Japanese equities and obviously has an income requirement. It looks to pay uh, an attractive dividend back to its shareholders. And it's exposed to, to REITs, so property companies in Japan, uh, and that proved to be uh, pretty painful in the period as well. So um, certainly a difficult time of it. Just on the, the dividend side, though, as I said, that is important. And in that, they fared um, a little bit better. So the revenue return per share for the year, the financial year, uh, worked out about just over 5p, 5.04p. Uh, and that was down only 4% uh, year on year, which compared with a number of equity income uh, investment trusts is not too bad at all. They paid out a total dividend of 4.6p. In other words, the dividend was covered for the year. And uh, again, not too many equity income mandates will say that during this period. Uh, and as we mentioned, they issued some uh, subscription shares just short of 27 million following the year end. Okay, so again, the importance of year ends there. I mean, they, that was a period to the end of October. And obviously, after that, the markets would have recovered quite strongly. So they may be looking at some good results next year if the markets do recover. Let's move on and talk about European opportunities. Uh, they've had some interim results out this week. This used to be known as Jupiter European Opportunities. Still got the ticker JEO. What were their interim results like? Yeah, so again, uh, a difficult period. So interim results for the six months to the end of November. As you say, this used to be called the Jupiter European Opportunities, now European Opportunities. Alexander Darwell still responsible for this one. And in that six-month period, the NAV was down 4%, and that compared with a rise of 11% for the uh, MSCI Europe Index. The share price total return was actually down 3%. But it's all about the, the stocks with this particular portfolio. Uh, at the end of January, the top 10 holdings equated to about 75%, and it's a very concentrated portfolio. Wirecard, which I know is the situation we've talked about before, 
and it was a big holding in European opportunities at one stage. That accounted for about 6% of the 15% underperformance. Um, they also had a couple of other stocks that uh, struggled in the period. So uh, quite difficult. Again, the commentary around that, there's a lot of uh, disclosure, probably less about Wirecard, actually, because I think, to be fair, um, that was covered in the in the previous results, even though the numbers have impacted at this period, uh, but about some of the other holdings and about how Alexander Darwell sees life at the moment. Some very interesting thoughts on ESG. I mean, he makes the comment that free market capitalism appears to be out of fashion with the investment community and political class. Uh, and he's still a very uh, resolute in terms of what he tries to do with his investment approach. It's a good illustration, isn't it, of the, of the fact that uh, there's a lot of people who argue that you need to have a concentrated portfolio to have a significant chance of outperforming or outperforming by a significant margin your index. But of course, there is a downside to that. And if one of your big holdings, and I think Workout was Alex Starwell's biggest single holding, uh, does go wrong, and, you, and in this case, it was all down to an accounting scandal, uh, that can be very painful and uh, obviously has a big impact, as, as he's obviously been forced to admit in this particular set of results. So I imagine this trust has got a very good long-term record, but uh, I imagine the rating remains under pressure because of the problems that were associated with that wildcard issue. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's trading on an 11% discount at the moment, uh, and that's a wider discount than you see across that European uh, subsector probably about 6% is the average discount on a market cap weighted basis. And yes, it was clearly derated uh, on the back of that wirecard development. So like all these things, I think uh, investors will want to see evidence of him uh, regaining his mojo, I guess, and uh, putting some more runs on the board. Indeed. Let's move on then and talk about Genesis Emerging Markets. Again, uh, uh, quite a long-standing Emerging Markets Investment Trust. Results for the six months to the 31st of December. They've managed to get their results out a bit quicker than some others. How do they do? Yep, so they saw an NAV total return of about 19%, so just slightly ahead of the, the benchmark index. In share price terms, though, they're, they're actually stronger, probably nearer to about 26% as the discount narrowed in. It, it ended up about 8% at the year end compared with 13% or so at the end of June. So again, it's it's the kind of familiar story with these emerging market plays uh, in, in, in the report. They make the point that uh, two-thirds of the index is tied up in North Asia, namely China, Taiwan, and South Korea. But in, in common with most emerging market managers, they, they try and invest in a more diversified basis, and they've got a kind of bias to earlier stage markets, which has proven to be a bit of a natural headwind, but despite which they kept up and even exceeded the benchmark in the period. Okay. And so how have they been doing compared to their peers in this period or indeed a little longer period? Yeah. So their, their performance record on a 12-month basis uh, and even on a longer term basis is not quite as strong as some of the other more mainstream emerging market plays. So if you look at uh, JP Morgan Emerging Markets, for instance, over five years, that's generated an NAV total return of 147%. Uh, and that compares with 101%. For Genesis and Templeton Emerging Markets over five years, that's up 167%. So of those three, that certainly has the bragging rights. But as I think you probably noted last week, uh, those kind of returns over a five-year period are, are, are pretty attractive. And if we go a shorter period, if we look over a year, Templeton and JP Morgan, they're both up 31%, whereas Genesis are up 16%. That's a one-year NAV total return. So does this make it likely that they will do the tender offer or not? I mean, it's too early to tell, obviously, because we don't know what the figures will be for 
the five years ending the 30th of June, what do they have to do to get through that particular offer? Yes, yeah, so that's right. So just to remind people, um, they have a conditional tender offer on the table. There's a, a number of uh, investment trusts in the Asian and emerging market space that have a similar mechanism. Uh, and basically, those type of conditional tender offers are invariably triggered by underperformance over a period of time. So five years to the end of June 2021, uh, i.e. this year, or discounts being wider than a particular level. I think in the case of Genesis, it's just on the NAV total return. Now, I think it's the case that uh, this particular investor trust has a tender offer scheme that is coming up, if you like, for realisation or or renewal uh, later this year. Uh, Can you tell us about that? And can you tell us whether this particular investor trust is likely to be able to meet the requirements to avoid a tender when the the offer matures? That's right. So uh, in common with a number of the emerging markets in Asian uh, investment trusts, this has a conditional tender on the table. Uh, and this one runs for the five-year period to the end of June this year. And basically, it's a 25% tender if they underperform during that period. Um, obviously, there are a few months still to go. But uh, if you look at the numbers, um, certainly the recent numbers, they are trailing the benchmark. They're a little bit behind. Uh, that's not to say that the, the tender offer is, is a given. Uh, there's still time to make that uh, underperformance up. But it, there is a possibility Uh, that there will be a tender offer later in the year. Okay, so let's move on. We can maybe make a comparison here or read across anyway to um, Mobius Investment Trust, MMIT. Uh, This is obviously headed up by Mark Mobius, who used to run Templeton Emerging Markets Investment Trust. Indeed, he was the first manager of that trust when it was set up in the 1980s, the first Emerging Markets Investment Trust. He's now on his own with his own small boutique. And uh, what's he had to say this week? That's right. So Mobius Investment Trust have their uh, annual results for the year to the end of November. Uh, In that time, the NAV total return was positive. It was up 16%. Um, Now, the fund doesn't actually have a benchmark, but I can tell you that the MSCI Emerging Markets Index was up 15% over that time. And in fact, in share price total return terms, the investment trust ended up 25% and the discount narrowed in from about 9% to about 3%. Uh, so it's an interesting one. As you say, this is obviously Mark Mobius and Carlos Hardenberg, who moved with him from uh, Franklin Templeton, uh, is also involved leading up the, the investment team. It's a slightly different take on emerging markets. The investment approach is all about engaging with companies in order to improve their operational and ESG factors with the aim of driving up stock valuations. So it's quite a concentrated portfolio, and they've taken some time to get their their capital at work. There's actually about 31 holdings, or there were at the the time of the end of November, across 12 countries. And in fact, one of the reasons why the Investment Trust benefited during this period uh, was because they're actually still sitting on a bit of cash going back to March last year, about 14% cash, which they uh, put to work, they added to their existing holdings, and that uh, benefited the performance. But it's an interesting uh, investment approach. You know, obviously, there's a lot of talk about ESG at the moment, but this is very much focused on encouraging their portfolio companies to improve their uh, ESG governance. And so there's a huge amount of engagement uh, with their portfolio companies. This uh, was launched in October 2018, uh, and I suspect they would probably argue that now they're starting to get a, a bit of traction in their investment approach. Yes, because we normally say it takes about three years, doesn't it, for people to start to look at something uh, quite seriously after three years. But of course, Mark Mavis has been doing this for a long, long time, though, as you say, in a different way. So it'll be interesting to see how that one gets on. 
Okay, let's talk about TR European Growth, TRG. Interim results to the 31st of December. Europe's not been a great place to be, but how have they been doing? Well, funnily enough, they've been doing quite well, actually. So their NAV total return was up 37% uh, in that six-month period. And that compares with a rise of 23% for the Euromoney Smaller European Companies XUK Index, which is a bit of a mouthful, but that's their benchmark. In share price terms, they've done even better. They were up 54% in that six-month period. Uh, as the discount narrowed from about 19 to 9. So um, there's a various different aspects of the portfolio that worked for them in, in the period. Structural growth stories, uh, which benefited from the pandemic, uh, that certainly helped them. The tilt into early cyclical value names uh, in anticipation of a recovery, that worked. The re-rating of ESG stories, uh, and also some stocks benefiting from the resolution of Brexit, uh, if people remember that. Um, so there's a number of different elements of the portfolio that worked. Obviously, there were a few detractors as well. But I think the investment team, so Ollie Beckett and Rory Stokes, will be quite pleased with that period of performance. OK, so let's move on into more specialist areas. Let's start with uh, the Herald Investment Trust. Uh, this is an interesting one, ticker HRI. They've had some annual results for last year, 2020. What's the story there? Yep, so they had their annual results for the 12 months to the end of December. Uh, and again, a pretty decent set of results. NAV total return up 37%. Uh, and that compares with a rise of 5% for the, the UK small cap index that they look at and 39% for the Russell 2000 small cap technology index. In share price terms, they did even better, up 52% as their discount narrowed into only 2%. So just to remind people uh, what this investment trust does, it's quite a specialist investment trust in many ways. It kind of gets lumped into the technology sector, and clearly there is a massive flavour of that. Katie Potts has been responsible for this one since 1994, and uh, at that time it was very much focused on what was called TMT at the time, and it still is very much focused on communications, multimedia and technology in the smaller company space. But it's a hugely diversified portfolio. Um, over 300 holdings, I think over 325 holdings at the end of January. Uh, the top 10 only represented about 16, 17% or so. And uh, quite a large weighting to the UK as well. Actually, the UK portfolio was about half the portfolio. And then uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, North America, 25%, um, some money in Europe and Asia as well. But uh, it's, it's an interesting story for people who uh, want to read an investment manager's uh, report this week. Should you have that particular desire, then I would recommend Katie Potts' words. I mean, she makes some very interesting comments on corporate governance and views on board diversity, uh, particularly in the sector, in the smaller companies that she looks at. Uh, and also she makes the case of the importance of providing capital to entrepreneurial companies uh, and therefore talks about how capital markets are working and not working. Uh, and Katie is absolutely fascinating on this subject and I think reflects her, her long experience of being a, often a core investor in these early stage businesses. Yes, of course, the trust suffers a little bit by being in the same sector as the two big technology trusts, Polar Capital Technology and Allianz Technology. Um, but it has got its own interesting take, as you say. And if you want something which is not so heavily exposed to the UK, this is an interesting uh, 50% with a sort of tech bias, a little tech bias anyway, compared to, you know, the North American ones, uh, the, the main ones have much more over there. It is an interesting alternative. Let's talk about Hickel Infrastructure, HICL, moving on to specialist back into the infrastructure space. Uh, they've had an update. What have they had to say? 
Yep, so they provided an interim update statement. Uh, and the kind of headline is that they're on track to deliver their target dividend for their financial year ending 31st of March 2021 of 8.25p. Although it's worth noting that the cash cover is estimated or expected to be by about 0.8 to 0.9 times. In other words, it will be uh, uncovered. Although they've said that the 8.25p dividend target for their financial year for 2022 is expected to be fully cash covered. So there's a few things going on under the bonnet of this one. I mean, it's a portfolio of long-term availability-based uh, PPP contracts. Uh, certainly, so 70% falls into that category and they're actually performing as expected. Although there is an element of the portfolio that has sensitivity to wider economic performance, uh, such as motorways, and they are being impacted by the pandemic to varying degrees. The, the investment team also made the point that there's actually downward pressure on discount rates on some of the infrastructure assets due to continued strong demand. Uh, and so that's obviously quite important when you come to value these type of uh, investment companies. Yes. So I imagine that if a current trends in the, uh, in the in the bond market continues, they might have to revise that at some point because there is a, a connection between yields in the, in the bond markets and the uh, kind of yields you could discount these projects at. But uh, as you say, a lot of demand for them at the moment. So that's not an immediate concern, I'm sure. Let's talk about Polar Capital Global Financials, another specialist trust. Obviously, the clue is in the name. Uh, they've had their annual results. This was another trust, actually, that uh, I spoke to for the Annual Investment Trust Handbook. And uh, they were hoping, after a long, <laughs> relatively barren spell for financials, that uh, things were about to turn better. And uh, have they so far been uh, realised or not? Um, well, to be fair, this, these results were for the 12 months to the end of November. So you may have talked to them uh, after this period, effectively. But in that time, their NAV total return was down about 7% or so. Uh, and that compared with a fall of 8% for their previous benchmark. Uh, and in fact, about 8% for their new benchmark. So changing benchmarks, regardless, they've, they've outperformed on a relative basis. And in share price terms, they actually fared a little bit better. So they were only down about 2%. Uh, they've maintained their dividend at 4.4p, and that was partly funded by revenue reserves. But clearly, the underlying revenue per share was impacted. It probably uh, halved almost. And that was really uh, a function of the fact that uh, banks would have su suspended uh, its dividends during this period. And bank holdings were the largest detractor in that 12-month period, while stock exchanges and payment companies and some of the asset managers actually were positive performers. Yes, I mean, the, the portfolio there is a mixture of, as you say, of banks, which are very substantial, obviously, because they're still significantly large companies in, in various indices and an increasing number of uh, fintech companies and payment companies and so on, which have done quite well. So they'll be quite happy about what's happening in the bond markets at the moment. You'd think if the yield curve is rising, that's normally good for bank profitability. Uh, how have the shares performed recently? Is there any sign of that uh, actually coming through into the share price performance? No, you make a good point. And, and people are talking about a rotation into banks and banks should be the beneficiary of this new period. I mean, over the last month, which is obviously an incredibly short period to judge anyone's performance, but they're up about 6% or so. Over the longer term, it's uh, slightly more mixed. Over the last uh, 12 months, they're up 13%, just to put that in context. But um, that does look as if there's a little bit of momentum over the, the last six months. So in share price terms, which obviously factors in that re-rating that they highlight in these results, over the last six months, they're up 47%, um, really the beneficiary of that re-rating. Indeed. So let's uh, move on then and talk about Riverstone Energy. This uh, has not had a particularly good year. I do know that. <laughs> What's been the story there? 
Yep, so they had their annual results out to the end of December. Their NAV per share, and this is in US dollars, it's, it's fair to say, they were down about 36% uh, in that year. So again, a pretty tough period. Uh, and just to, to remind people there, this is effectively a, a play on the global energy uh, industry. Riverstone, a well-known investor in this space, the portfolio has 12 active uh, investments in the US, Canada, and the, the Gulf of Mexico, as well as uh, Europe. But yeah, it's been a, a tough period for it. They, they saw proceeds about $52 million uh, from the portfolio, but they have tilted actually in the last year or so into a new type of investment. So they talk in the results about deploying $46 million in new decarbonization investments. Uh, and also they've tried to address the discount, which has been quite wide for some time. And they had a, a £50 million buyback program in May last year. They announced that back in May last year, and that's pretty much run its course now. £49 million worth of shares have been bought back. I mean, I think it's fair to say, I think they rather sort of blackened their copybook a few years ago by issuing shares at a discount without offering it to everybody, as I recall. I can't remember exactly what happened there. Uh, and that, that led to kind of adverse sentiment. But unfortunately, their performance hasn't been that good, has it? I mean, a lot of other companies in this area, which obviously covers mining as well as, uh, as, well as oil and so on, have actually done very well on the back of this uh, rotation that we've been talking about and the recovery from the pandemic uh, sell-off, when, if you remember, the oil price briefly went negative at some point. Gosh, it was a long time ago. It's now about $60 a barrel. It's been very strong in the second half of the year as the economy globally recovers. So do you think they've done enough to start earning their place in the market back again? Well, they're trading on a discount of about 30% or so at the moment. And as you say, the, the performance over the long term uh, doesn't look too clever. Just to put some numbers on that, the NAV total return over five years is down 59%. Um, in share price terms, it's even worse, down 61%. And even over short time periods, they've, they've delivered negative returns over five, three and one year. So uh, some way to go, uh, I think, to make up ground. And as I say, that with a discount nearer to 30%. It's uh, it's on uh, pretty much the widest rating in that uh, subsector. Okay, so we'll just move on to one more. We're going to do Pantheon International. Uh, Private Equity Trust had interim results to the end of November. Remind us what they do and uh, how they've been performing. Yeah, so Pantheon International is a fund of private equity funds. Uh, they had interim results out for the six months to the end of November, as you say. During that time, their NAV total return was up 9%. And that compares with a rise of the MSCI World Index of about 12%. And funnily enough, their share price is broadly in line with that rise with the MSCI World. So interesting uh, portfolio. There's quite a, a high weighting towards um, technology, about 29%, and healthcare, 19%. And that undoubtedly helped the fund's performance in that period. In fact, when you strip out the foreign exchange movements, because uh, uh, funnily enough, that was a headwind, the portfolio was up about 15% or so. Very interesting hearing the update from Helen Steers on you know how this has performed, and again the real roller coaster that private equity saw last year, going back to kind of March April. I think there was a lot of fear that um, there would be a real squeeze uh, and that people would have to provide additional capital to uh, prop up their portfolio companies. That didn't really happen, uh, and uh, Helen made it quite clear on the call where additional funding was provided for some of the portfolio companies. Invariably, it was for them to make opportunistic acquisitions rather than to see the wolf off from the door. And you can see that in terms of the numbers. I mean, investment activity certainly picked up as the year went on. Distributions totaled £111 million. 
while there were calls of 54 million. So in other words, there was net cash flow of 57 million. The balance sheet looks in a good state. They've got an unused credit facility, which they've extended out to May 2024. And there's net available cash of 151 million. So the balance sheet looks, as I say, in a good state. Okay, so let's finish off. As so often, we can't let a week go by without mentioning our friends at Hypnosis. Hypnosis Songs Fund, S-O-N-G Song, recently had a rather disappointing uh, fundraising exercise. Uh, But they've put out an announcement this week, which uh, I think caused us a chuckle. Well, most of what they do causes a chuckle, though it's obviously a serious business. We mustn't be too flippant about it. But we've been enjoying watching their progress into the market and... uh, and the way they've been uh, approaching the market. Uh, so what have they what have they announced this week, uh, Simon? Well, we hadn't heard from them, as you say, for a week or two, which was slightly unusual. But this week they announced that uh, one of the songs in their portfolio, and bearing in mind they do have, I think, several thousand songs in their portfolio, but one of them, Don't Stop Believing, by a band called Journey, had this week hit the 1 billion stream mark on Spotify. Uh, and that apparently is, becomes only the second classic record to achieve uh, that particular milestone alongside Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, so it's also Don't Stop Believing is the most streamed record on Spotify from the 1980s. So uh, they were quite quick to tell the market about that. Yes, Journey, of course, for those who don't know, they're an American uh, West Coast band, I believe, founded in 1973, I'm happy to tell you. OK, do you think there's a message there in the choice of this song, Don't Stop Believing? Okay. <laughs> uh, that's an issue which we've been talking about, whether or not investors are beginning to raise some question marks about uh, hypnosis because... Uh, a couple of things about the level of disclosure they, they've they been uh, adopting and also the fact they've now a rival in Roundhill, a second music royalties fund, which is actually uh, bigger than the hypnosis itself. So uh, what do you what do you think? Uh, what's been happening to the to the share price? I suppose that's a way of, of asking what's been happening to the share price and what's been happening to the rating. Has the market stopped believing? Well, uh, it's fair to say that the share price has uh, weakened. It ended the week at about 114p. Uh, And just to put that into some context, uh, I think it hit a recent high of 126p. So we're not talking of a kind of Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust derating, but it's certainly uh, seen a little bit of weakness. So perhaps that announcement this week about that particular song uh, had a double meaning. Indeed. Well, we'll have to go ahead and see whether the market generally has stopped believing in the uh, in the recovery from the global pandemic, if this week's uh, trends carry on. I have to say, I mean, for some of us who've been around the market a long time, there are some familiar feels about this particular market. It did seem to have got rather hot and ahead of itself. Whether that then subsequently translates into a big share price collapse uh, generally, as some prognosticators would have it, remains, of course, to be seen. But what I can say is that when markets go through one of these periods, it makes it just as interesting and just as important, if not more important, than uh, when markets are rising seamlessly. Because as the old saying says, I think you reminded it of us before, which is that um, it's uh, during the bear markets that you find out who's uh, who's really got it and who hasn't. So, well, uh, if there is a bear market coming, and I'm not predicting there is, of course, uh, I think this could just be a phase. We'll find out who's doing well and who isn't, who can survive this particular uh, new phase in the market. Anyway, there's a lot to talk about in future weeks, and I look forward to that, Simon. And, um, well, I'm sorry about the cricket. That's all I can say. <laughs> so am I. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. 
The website also has details of how to join the Moneymakers Circle, our premium content subscription service, offering more interviews, portfolio updates and market commentary. Thank you for listening and please keep safe in these difficult times.